Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice the amount of renewable energy compared to the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. just keep fossil fuels in the ground and hope our demand will go down as well because it won't. As of now, we're seeing a lot of rhetoric that shows that demand will go down if countries actually implement the policies that they say they will, but we haven't actually seen a lot of actual policies. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Political Climate, a bi-weekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper, and we are back again with my co-hosts, Shane Skelton and Brandon Hurlbutt. And we also have on this episode, Amy Harder. She's a longtime energy and climate change journalist. She's written for Axios, The Wall Street Journal, and earlier this year took a role as executive editor for Cypher. Cypher is a newly launched publication with a mission to help accelerate the technological transformations required to get to net zero emissions by 2050 through trustworthy and objective journalism. Cypher is backed by Breakthrough Energy, which is an umbrella name of several organizations and was founded by Bill Gates in 2015. Breakthrough is a network of investment vehicles, philanthropic programs, policy advocacy, and other activities, all aimed at accelerating innovation and ultimately reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So hello, Amy. Thank you so much for coming on. And returning guest. Yes. Hello. It is great to be with you all again. It's been too long and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. Brandon, how are you doing? First, let's get your voice in here. We haven't connected in two weeks now that we're, we're publishing this every two weeks. Where are you coming to the show from today? From home in LA, but was in DC all of last week. We had a big retreat in our big new office and uh, had some meetings uh, with the top Biden folks. So it was a great trip. That means Shane, you were there too, right? Same team? Yeah, I was actually out of town 28 of 31 consecutive days going uh, here, there and everywhere else, including a couple stops in D.C. Uh, we did have our retreat, which was awesome. And I was able to coax Brandon into getting on stage at our dinner and drinks night. He didn't do what you know, I wanted him to really do something crazy, which he didn't do. But I was able to push him hard enough to just get up, say hello, make an announcement, you know. I beat the drum. What was he going to do? I wonder. Hmm. He's been working out a lot, like little boxing jabs or something. I have a big competition on Saturday. Competition? Yeah, boxing competition. That you are participating in? Yeah. Hopefully I'll be coming back to the show with a big belt as the champion. <laughs> the way Julia Amazing. expressed surprise, Brandon, I found a little bit condescending. I'm used to it from Julia. It doesn't even phase me anymore. No, I just wasn't sure if there was like a sports ball game happening and I didn't know about it or if Brandon was doing something. Anywho, let's not hold back punches in this conversation and get into it. There you that, go. Nice transition, transition there, Julia. That's know. why you're so good at your job. Yeah, thanks. I think the boxing's cool for the record. 
Okay, Amy, I want to bring you in here and get into the details. So you've spent over a decade covering energy and climate from D.C. Today, you're based in Seattle, where you've been overseeing all the editorial coverage for Cypher. So for those who may not be familiar yet, just walk us through what Cypher is. And then what I really want to know from you is, you know, what did you see changing in climate and energy journalism that drew you to this publication? And what are you hoping to do with it? Well, cipher uh, at the very basic level uh, means zero. Uh, and so our goal is, of course, collectively zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And when I joined Breakthrough Energy in February of this year, cipher didn't exist. Uh, they being, of course, Jonah Goldman, who is the managing director of Breakthrough Energy, and ultimately Bill Gates, who's the founder of Breakthrough Energy, brought me on to help fill a void that they see, and I agree, about a particular worldview when it comes to energy and climate change. And it's a worldview that I had just naturally arrived at over the course of my career. So I found it to be a really relatively easy job to accept, even though I loved my time at Axios. You know, in a perfect world, they would have waited a couple of years because I wanted a few more years at Axios, but timing never works out uh, exactly like you want it to in life. And so uh, and, and that worldview, to me, makes a lot of sense. The basic premise is we need to drastically reduce the prices of new clean energy technologies, which includes wind and solar. But it's not just that. It's everything from wind and solar to clean hydrogen to uh, green cement to sustainable aviation fuel. I think our conversation opening up this podcast is a sign that travel is coming roaring back and we're all hopping on planes I'm heading to Salt Lake City this week, Washington, D.C. next week. And so needless to say, we need uh, affordable, sustainable aviation fuel. And that has just, I think, come home even more in the light of the pandemic when economic concerns are paramount. We need to reduce the prices of these technologies. And that's the basic uh, premise of uh, much of what Breakthrough Energy does and much of what Cypher will be covering. Uh, And so my journalism won't change significantly. It'll just be more focused on the technology. And I'll be able to dive into the details more on a lot of these exciting technologies that Cypher will scrutinize, not because we don't support them or do support them, but because we need them. But we need to make sure that we do this right. That's interesting. It's like real world elements of it. Not that you weren't covering the real world elements when you're looking at policy, but also just this holistic look at what it's really going to take to decarbonize and get to net zero, which I feel like is a trend in and of itself, is that we are talking about everything now. We've got renewables. We know the technologies that work. But then that last 20%, 10%, how do you really get there and decarbonize? Definitely. And even with wind and solar, uh, of course, I don't need to tell this crowd that long duration energy storage is really important for the electricity grid. And and making sure that we can build transmission lines, power lines to move all this wind and solar and sometimes hydropower from where the power exists to where the, the people are. And so all of these topics encompass the, the mission of Breakthrough Energy and the mission of Cypher. And the balance there, you know, maybe a decade ago, it would have been tougher sell to do what I call mission-driven journalism. But today... There's already a lot of that type of journalism that's happening that is not even described as such. And so I I think it's great that we're being transparent about who's supporting us, but also being, as I said in my manifesto, when Cypher launched at the end of September, I anticipate tense conversations both internally and externally, because this is such a massive problem. We're not going to get there by always having easy conversations. Amy, how do you feel about being, you know, out of DC? You're on the on the best coast now. How do you compare? 
Well, I got to say, leaving in the dawn of a pandemic made it a little easy not to miss all the gatherings and friends and parties uh, that I would have missed had I left not in the beginning of a pandemic. I moved here in March 2020. Before this job actually had even come on the radar, I have family here and wanted to broaden my horizon reporting. And I even had made the pitch to my editors at Axios at the time. Well, Seattle's closer to China, so I'll do lots of reporting in China because that's where the energy story is. Clearly, I have not gone to China. Don't really have any eminent plans to. Uh, but I love being here. You know, I was in D.C. for 12 years, so I don't miss it. There are certain aspects of it that uh, I'll need to go back for and that I will miss. But I think now there's so many reporters in D.C. that are chasing around lawmakers. There's how many reporters circling Senator Manchin asking what he thinks about the latest bill? I don't need to be the 51st reporter asking him those questions. I don't remember you ever being a like a TikTok reporter, right? You were always sort of digging into details and doing some deep dive coverage, at least as long as I've been paying attention. But I don't remember reading your work and saying, so-and-so said this yesterday and this today. I definitely did some of that in the early days when I was at National Journal. I basically lived up on Capitol Hill and I really value that experience. It got me to know a lot of the senators and Congress people. Senator Manchin you know, would recognize me uh, at a certain point in all of our conversations about this. But, you know, once you've done that for a few years, for me, I got a little bored. Uh, And so now, you know, a whole new world has opened up. I'm talking to entrepreneurs and I'm immediately focusing very global uh, because that's so important to our mission and to making energy technologies affordable for the entire world. Uh, But yeah, I, whether I like to admit it or not, I definitely was one of those reporters chasing around lawmakers, asking them about cap and trade long after it died. Yeah, I kind of feel like green tech media where I used to report was kind of ahead of its game in a way like they were covering the clean energy transformation, starting back in like 2009 or something from the business perspective. And it was small companies, they weren't, you know, going that far. And here we have Brandon, you know, he's in the investment side. And you can probably speak more to the deals. But there's a huge amount of money flowing into this sector. You have people like Bill Gates making this a top priority, like things have changed a lot in a decade, which is crazy. And now it's getting the journalism and media attention, I think it deserves as well. From Cypher and also through Canary Media, we have to say, which, you know, also launched recently and has done an excellent job at covering the clean energy transition. And I don't just say that because they are supporters of the show. One thing you mentioned, Amy, was the tough conversations. And there is one conversation we have not tackled on this show yet, which has to do with the energy crisis that people may have been hearing about in the news. This is with fossil fuel prices skyrocketing in many places around the globe. We've seen China have an energy supply crunch, Europe as well. Consumers are feeling it in their pocketbooks here at home, which has had political implications. You've written about this for Cypher recently. I'm wondering if you can set it up for our audience a little bit of of what you found when you looked at what the energy crisis is and to what extent the clean energy stuff is related to it. The energy crisis, and, and by that I mean there's been skyrocketing natural gas prices and electricity prices in Europe. A few weeks ago, we saw shortages of coal in China uh, and India. Here in the United States, we're also seeing uh, incredibly high natural gas prices about Half the homes in the U.S. heat their homes with natural gas, so that's really concerning. Uh, Propane has also gone really high. And so as we head into a potentially cold winter, this is all very concerning from an affordability perspective, just putting aside the climate conversation. The reasons for this current energy crisis, although it's unfolding differently around the world, boils down to the pandemic. The pandemic has created this huge whipsaw of a pendulum swinging 
you know, oil prices went negative in April of 2020. So it's natural that we're seeing this extreme other end uh, of these fossil fuel prices. And it really has nothing to do substantially with the clean energy transition. Sure, in Europe, offshore wind has been less windy, and that has contributed to it, but it's really been a relatively minor cause. But the problem is, is that perception is often reality, particularly in politics when people who don't support the energy transition will, will cite these high energy prices as examples of why we can't transition. And the tough part is, is that, in fact, if we don't manage the energy transition in an orderly way, which is a word the International Energy Agency uses, it could, in fact, cause high oil, natural gas and coal prices in the same way we're seeing high prices now. And so even though the high prices today are caused by something totally different, it's not untrue that this couldn't happen in the future. And that's so many double negatives. I'm hitting myself for that. But, you know, for this week's edition of Cypher, I interviewed the executive director of the IEA, Dr. Fatih Barrow, and he's been all over the media about this. And he says we need to make sure that while we're reducing the supply of oil, natural gas and coal, which we're doing pretty well, we also need to reduce the demand for it. And that has been less successful because countries have been reluctant to issue the policies that really take a bite out of demand. And that opens up a whole nother can of worms. But eventually you need to reduce both demand and supply and you need to do it in a gradual orderly manner. Otherwise you're going to have spikes in the years ahead and that could stall the transition. You have one of my favorite diet-related uh, analogies I think you came up with at Axios about we're adding a side salad to pasta, but not taking away any pasta when it comes to like adding clean energy, but not removing any fossil fuels. And I think you used a similar kind of analogy in your recent Cypher column. So walk us through that and what it has to do with this volatility in energy markets. To lose weight, technically, you could just stop eating altogether, but that wouldn't last very long because you would get hungry and so just stopping the supply of fossil fuels won't get us to reduce demand. Eventually, we'll get hungry for that fossil fuel and go back to um, the well to get more. And we'll pay a heck of a lot more for it. In order to lose weight gradually, you need to slowly lower the amount of calories you're intaking, exercise a little bit more. Maybe exercise can be the renewable energy in this sort of warped metaphor. Uh, and you need to do it gradually over a period of time, just like we need to do the energy transition over a relatively gradual, but still on a historical scale, rapid pace. But we can't just keep fossil fuels in the ground and hope our demand will go down as well, because it won't. As of now, we're seeing a lot of rhetoric that shows that demand will go down if countries actually implement the policies that they say they will. But we haven't actually seen a lot of actual policies reducing demand for fossil fuels, which is kind of outrageous considering how much rhetoric we've heard about it. One of the strangest things, you know, to me about this supply crunch and, and the prices, and, and obviously people are rightfully concerned, is that, you know, I you know, we, we talked about Brandon being an energy investor. I am also someone who likes to invest and I do it poorly, which is why I don't do it for a living. And I know from experience, commodity prices are volatile and often unpredictable unless you're in a known, you know, supply crunch or surplus. So one of the things that, that I don't understand when people blame the clean energy transition and take the climate aspect out of it, is that when you're dealing with physical commodities that require logistics and delivery, you are always at risk. That, that is always going to be true, even if climate change disappeared as a fact of life. And so I, I guess 
what I'm struggling with, and I'm curious because you said perception is reality, and that's true, but sometimes it's a forced perception because I think certain parts you know, of the economy and of the political ecosystem want to believe that fossil fuels are always the best. And in certain use cases at certain times, they may end up being cheaper. That's absolutely true. But you are going to accept commodity price volatility if you continue to rely on physical commodities, and no one seems to want to acknowledge that. I think that's a great point. And although I say perception is reality, I think it's really important through good media like Cypher and Canary Media and others to try to change that perception. You can't just sort of lay back and be like, okay, let's accept this narrative of fossil fuels. I think where things break down is that it's sort of the chicken or the egg. Like we need to start getting people to be less, gradually so, less dependent on these fossil fuels and on to these other clean energy technologies that are not dependent upon this volatile commodity market. In the IEA's net zero report from earlier this year, their findings on this are really interesting. They find that fossil fuel prices do skyrocket and are incredibly volatile later in the out decades going up to 2050, but it doesn't affect most people because most people have moved on to clean energy technologies that are not impacted by that volatility. The the challenge is getting from here to there and making sure that this perception doesn't overwhelm action so then we can get from here to there. So Amy, the Biden plan seems to be, when you talk about creating that demand, is to put forth these subsidies that are in the bipartisan infrastructure bill and build back better. What do you think about what Elon said uh, recently where he's like, yeah, we don't want the subsidies, just get rid of all the subsidies, just delete them. Uh, Do you think that would solve this? Well, so a section of Cypher is called Amy's Lunchtime Reads and Hot Takes. And this is the last hot take I added uh, for this week's edition. The way I read that is Elon Musk is dominating the electric vehicle field. And if there were no subsidies, his company would continue to dominate. And so, sure, if he wants to make a few more hundred billion dollars, let's not... uh, pass any more subsidies. But for sure, as I wrote for Axios earlier this year, electric cars need to be cheaper so everybody can afford them, not just the people who make a quarter of a million dollars, which is about the average salary of a Tesla driver in California, uh, to make sure that everybody uh, can drive them. And so I found his comments pretty rich considering, of course, that Tesla has received hundreds of million dollars of subsidies uh, uh, several years ago, and now suddenly he doesn't need them. So I think that was just a comment of a guy who wants to dominate the market. He said, we don't need electric vehicle charging stations. Well, yeah, because Tesla has the largest market, and if other companies get subsidies, they could also uh, have them. So a lot of people think Elon Musk is helping to save the world. I think obviously Tesla technology has made a humongous impact on that. But those comments indicate to me that he just wants to dominate the market. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy compared to the state's average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. 
By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. To go back to the energy crisis for a minute, you know, one element of this conversation I struggle with is that clean energy can be blamed for causing volatility largely in these fuel markets, which, as we've discussed, have other factors at play. They are global markets. They're driven by other elements, including the pandemic. And yet we see clean energy sort of taking a hit in certain conversations for having fueled price increases, or it will allegedly do so more in the future. But on the flip side, there's a complaint that, okay, the crisis is because clean energy was not available enough. And thus, when fossil fuels faltered, there wasn't enough clean energy available and, you know, take up the slack, if you will, which just seems like an impossible situation to expect clean energy to have been there to step in when we're seeing these other conversations undermine the same resource. So that's one point. I think it also begs the question, though, how this will then translate in the minds of, you know, consumers and politicians and people who are making decisions. So it's interesting how this becomes quite political all of a sudden, and certainly there are interests at play. And so just to round it out on the energy crisis, do you think this will affect things like what countries commit to following COP? Do you think it'll affect what the U.S. is looking at in terms of the passing the Bill Back Better Act? Or are you seeing this discussion on energy prices kind of in a separate area from those dialogues? I think a few weeks ago when this was super top of mind for Europe. You saw some uh, concerns about that. Europe is one good test case. If Europe backtracks, then that doesn't bode well because Europe is the most progressive continent on earth when it comes to climate change action. So I would be looking to see how Europe handles this winter. Uh, Obviously, they're trying to be dependent upon increasing their natural gas supplies from the U.S. and potentially Russia. Uh, which, you know, maybe in the short term, we're going to need some natural gas. Uh, That type of commitment uh, may help smooth out the transition to a future without natural gas. It's one reason why the European Union is considering including natural gas in its green taxonomy, um, which is basically finance rules for investing. So we'll see how this winter goes. Uh, For now, it doesn't seem like there's been any major backtracking on policies, which is uh, really important. Senator Joe Manchin, of course, Uh, A pivotal vote in the Senate has made some comments about this, but so far it hasn't seemed to have derailed uh, too much. I guess we'll see what happens on the political side as we head into 2022, which is a midterm election year. And I know for progressives, it was a bit of a black eye when Biden showed up at COP26 calling for climate action globally and then called on OPEC to increase production at the same time, which was a little bit of a mixed message there, to, to say the least. There definitely does, on its face value, appear to be very, very mixed. I will say, though, that that is part of this sort of three steps forward, two steps back thing, where you can't just take five steps forward and no steps back. There needs to be, particularly in response to the swinging pendulum of all the supply shocks of the pandemic, this was always going to happen. And so I can see from a political perspective why the Biden administration is doing this. Hopefully, though, that this type of calling on OPEC, continuing to issue some leases for oil and gas, that also needs to be met just as stringently with policies that are going to help bring more of these clean energy technologies to market. 
I take issue with that, though, Amy, and I'm curious to hear from from any of you all, not on the oil production. I don't I don't care about that. But really, when we talk about being reliant on overseas producer, overseas producers for things that we need. So let's say we get past oil and gas. Let's say that our, our economy just doesn't run on fossil fuels. We have a clean energy future. Well, we rely on critical minerals. As you know, we rely on nickel and zinc and cobalt and lithium. And we are in the same position that we've always been in with oil and gas, where we'd rather ask OPEC to produce than produce it here, even though we produce it in a cleaner and more responsible way. Not sticking up for the fossil fuel industry, but as I look forward towards the clean energy industry, which we're all interested in, aren't we going to face the same issues if China controls every part of our supply chain? Aren't they the new OPEC for our clean energy future? And do you see what I see as a confrontation of ideologies, which is we need to be zero emissions? And then also, we can't provide any of the resources that we need to be zero emissions here in the United States. Oh, I think the the battle over critical minerals is just emerging now and will be the defining challenge uh, of the clean energy transition when it comes to geopolitics. And so I, I think I actually wrote an article a couple of years ago saying China will be the new OPEC in the clean energy future. The difference, though, you know, there's some important nuances. Oil is liquid. Uh, it's, as of now, a commodity market where prices can be very volatile. You know, at least with minerals, you can it can be a little bit more stable, although obviously China is already dominating in this area. And so that's why, you know, the U.S. is trying to have allies. For example, Australia is a big producer of some of these minerals. But I think one challenge that we face um, as you mentioned, is that although everybody wants clean energy, they certainly don't want to mine in their backyard that might be mining for these minerals here in the United States. So the whole not in my backyard opposition, which is plaguing a lot of the renewable energy industry, is also already starting to plague this issue. And so I think, yes, certainly agree with you on this. And that's something that the administration is definitely very keen to try to avoid. But China's already quite far ahead in this game. It's definitely a Biden administration talking point, move more manufacturing here. But of course, the actual supplies that go into that is another question. And it sounds, though, like the U.S. does have some of these resources. We just haven't really tapped into them. And I'm not sure what the latest science is on how much of each resource we have. But it's interesting to see the dialogue shifting. But then you get into a little bit of this next topic I want to touch on, which is nimbyism, not in my backyard issues, which could happen when it comes to extraction, even of, of minerals and things for clean energy resources, and also for deployment of, of projects that are clean energy. We have this momentum building around this whole sector. And yet when it comes to actually getting this stuff you know, out into the world, we see local communities pushing back. And this is another topic I know you wrote about recently, Amy. So talk us through what you saw happen in Maine and how you tie that even to COP26 and these global dialogues and why it's all connected. Yeah, certainly. So a few months back, I first learned about this main project. And, you know, on face value, it seemed pretty innocuous. Now, that's not to dismiss the concerns of residents, but still, relatively speaking, it wasn't hundreds of miles. So what it is, or was, or probably was, I should say, is a 150-mile power line sending Canadian hydropower through Maine, connecting at the border with Massachusetts. It's a project uh, prompted by Massachusetts climate goals, And so there was lots of uh, opposition to this project, which was actually the second project that came after another project had failed due to local opposition. And so the concerns were many. One was Canadian hydropower is existing clean energy. We should have new clean energy. Uh, It would go through a a sensitive part of the, the main forest. The more I dug in, though, the more I realized that 
sure, those are some concerns, but at this point in time, the Massachusetts request was specifically for hydropower, so it can firm up the wind and solar that also needs to rapidly grow, right? Just because the hydropower is coming down doesn't mean you don't build wind and solar. You've got to do it all. And something that really struck me, which wasn't in any of my stories, so this is sort of an exclusive scooplet uh, for you guys. I was talking to an environmentalist in Maine, and she said, who was opposed to the project due to the local environmental impact, she said the power line would go through where whitewater rafters have lunch, and it would ruin their view. And I was just like, if that's our bar for infrastructure, we are going to have a heck of a time combating climate change if we're going to ruin the views of rafters and that's going to, to be the end. So I followed uh, that back a few, that was a few months ago. Uh, in the middle of the climate conference in Glasgow, there was a vote by the voters in Maine to actually oppose the project. And now the project is very unlikely or is facing even more hurdles to, to go through. And, you know, I hear all this rhetoric I heard all this rhetoric in Glasgow from afar. I, I did not attend, but I heard it saying all these net zero goals. Well, ultimately, net zero goals mean you, you need to make a million local decisions just like that main one. And we can't even do a relatively easy, small project. And so it raises a lot of concerns about what big things our society can do. And just one last thing on this, I just want to emphasize, I don't think we should bulldoze over people's concerns there were also major concerns about the developers of this project. So developers of clean energy and transmission lines need to get better at how they engage with the affected communities. And Amy, it's funny you said that. This goes back to, you know, this podcast is not combative, right? Like when we started this out years ago, it was sort of a right-left um, crossfire kind of thing. But, and you became you know, a I, Democrat. <laughs> according <laughs> to you. Um, but but I, am, I am an environmental and climate evangelist, uh, despite the fact that I, you know, vote Republican for every other possible reason. Having said that, I think that like we ultimately, <laughs> you, uh, we ultimately have to, we have to make choices. Right. And so I always said at the beginning of this podcast, when it was combative, what is it that we're trying to achieve? If we're trying to address climate change, if we genuinely believe, and you guys have heard me say this a million times, that that is the largest threat to mankind at this moment, we need to make choices. Nothing comes with a platter of everything. And based on what you just shared, I'm actually quite frustrated, not with you, of course, but with it, no one is getting there. Like no one is getting to the point where you say, this is a huge threat. It's a crisis and we're going to address it. Every other single parochial interest seems to outweigh this one, even though people pretend that they care about this one. Do you see any breaking of that dam or is that just sort of where we're going to be for a while? I'm starting to see it. Uh, one of my other lunchtime reads and hot takes was an article by the AP about a new coalition forming in New Jersey that includes wind offshore wind developers, but also residents that support it. And, you know, that's the way that we need to, to get these projects done. There needs to be coalitions built before some of these projects go through. So there is buy-in and support from the beginning. So I thought that was really great. I also think to your point about parochial interests are taking over, Ultimately, so many different interest groups, they care about climate change, but they also care about other things. For example, the Sierra Club doesn't love nuclear power. In fact, their official position is they oppose it, even if sometimes they don't fight keeping open uh, existing reactors. But there isn't really a lot of organizations that, number one and number two, number three, are reducing emissions. And a small plug for Cypher and Breakthrough Energies, that's really what we're trying to do. And so I think we need more of that and we're starting to see more of that. 
But, you know, this is a race and we have no time to waste. And right now we're wasting a lot of time by complaining about the white water rafters who don't have a view during lunch. And it's just to remind ourselves, we are talking about a power line, okay? This isn't a pipeline. Anyways, I was just flabbergasted by that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's just one scenario. And I know that there are others, you know, than in other parts of the country and around the world. So I want to go to Brandon because he's so good at like injecting some positivity in here. And we've talked about some of the challenges facing the energy transition in the spirit of good journalism and Amy's background and just treating the energy system for the complex thing that it is. But this is a political podcast. So, Brandon, what do you think this all means for the Biden administration as they do try to sell their Build Back Better agenda and their climate you know, record? Uh, they're going to still run into these hurdles in deploying and actually getting these solutions out into the world. They do have to deal with inflation and the energy prices. How do you think they're going to grapple with these challenges we're seeing? They have to connect how these policies are going to reduce prices for people and make their lives better. Um, you know, we were talking about the supply chain. You know, America can own this. We can bring those jobs back here. We can have manufacturing jobs here. You know, on like lithium, there is the Salton Sea, right, in the middle of, you know, central California that people think could be like the Saudi Arabia of lithium. And so that could be a great economic boost, you know, in an area of this state that could really use it. So, I really think they need to connect those dots for people and it's not really working yet, but maybe once, cause right now it's been all this like process and sausage making and Joe Manchin, Kirsten cinema, but hopefully they can get that money flowing soon and get these projects going and then lift up and tell the stories of all the benefits that they're creating. Brandon 2022. I'm no, <laughs> I mean, and that's some of the things we're going to be doing at clean energy for America because they can't do it alone. We need outside groups to help them. And I know when I was at the DOE, it was hard to get connected to what was happening on the ground. You can feel so far removed from that. So we need groups to be, you know, facilitating the education process. I mean, the DOE alone with Build Back Better could get a hundred billion dollars, right? I mean, that is a lot of, you know, funding to move. And so Brandon, for context, can you remind people what what you guys were were dealing with? The Recovery Act, we got 30 billion, like, you know, EERE grants, like weatherization money and smart grid money, all of that, right? You know, and that was enormous. It was an enormous challenge. And, but we got it in February of 2009. So we had that time to get it going. You know, I, I can't remember what we talked about on the show, but the DOE chief of staff, Tarek, who, who had my, who is my job that I used to have said, we got to hire a thousand people. So here's an opportunity for people to go and serve and be a part of this and help because they need it. But if we do this right, and you know, I'm, I'm nervous about some of these things on, on the implementation side, but if we do it right, we can address a lot of the things that Amy's talking about. I mean, the sheer bureaucracy of hiring a thousand people, you know, in time to then do the work that needs to be done before the next presidential election. It's a tall order. Daunting. And I wonder, too, if the prices will be felt right away. Like, we know that clean energy, because once you deploy the wind and solar, that resource is free. But you do have to get the projects up and running. Like with other infrastructure projects, they can have knock-on benefits for many, many years to come. But you have to live through that construction project for the first three years. So you're outside of an election cycle timeline. So even though these things are great and so overdue for the country... I do wonder from a political perspective, just how much of that goodness Democrats will be able to capture 
in, you know, the coming months and couple years. Yeah, you know, I think where, you know, people from Shane's political persuasion can be, you know, skeptical is, you know, we had that money that we allocated for high speed rail in the Recovery Act. And like, you know, that was supposed to be like, there's supposed to be a high speed rail line from LA to San Francisco at this point. <laughs> We're nowhere even close to that, you know? And they're saying now it's like 2033 or whatever. So we're going to have to figure out how to move all these different stakeholders and not get stuck in this red tape and bureaucracy. You know, when President Obama, we had Hurricane Sandy, uh, I remember in our meeting with him, he said, I don't want to hear about any red tape. You know, we need to get the power back up. We need to get this fuel moving. And if there's any red tape, I want to hear about it. You know, so they're going to hopefully this Mitch Landrew, you know, can sort of serve in that role where people are able to identify points of failure and you can get that White House authority, you know, to to move some of this. Uh, we're already seeing it. He's the former mayor of, of New Orleans, and he's been appointed as sort of in charge of the infrastructure bill implementation. They've brought him in. But yeah, I mean, this is this is going to be a tall order and we're all going to have to pull together on the outside to, to provide that support. Well, Amy, I want to go to you for our last question here and, and sort of thread the needle. You know, you spent this time in D.C. as a reporter covering the Hill. Now you're covering more technology. I guess, what are you looking out for in, in the months ahead? Do you think you'll have to report on the policy because that's so prevalent? Are you going to be heads down on the industry developments? How are you thinking about the list of priorities here and what excites you most? Yeah, certainly. Well, I've always seen my beat and our beat as being really, it's just cuts into so many different things. So even though when I was based in DC, I still, you know, was on the phone with back then I was talking to the CEOs of oil companies today, not as much. Uh, but they're still important characters, whether you you love them or hate them. Uh, and so I would say, you know, policy is essential. Uh, th- this week's edition on ciphers is focusing largely on the infrastructure law and the Build Back Better. Uh, but it's not just that. It's this perspective for cipher, which is the, I think, the perspective that we all need to be looking at when it comes to tackling climate change is how can this be done on a global scale and a global level? So my interview with the IEA executive director talks about the importance of these of the infrastructure law, but also the Build Back Better passing from a global perspective. And sure, it wasn't what a lot of people wanted, but it's still, as we've been discussing today, historic amounts of funding. And so policy will be a big thing I'll be focusing on. But what I would love to do when travel becomes uh, easier and I get more support from a journalistic perspective at Cypher, I or the, the people we hire would love to go out and be on the ground and talk to the people who are building these green hydrogen plants in Europe or the U.S. and where these long-duration energy storage facilities are being built and direct air capture. And so my goal for 2022 would be to go out to one of these hubs that are going to be built in response to the infrastructure law and talk to the CEO whose company is building it and talk about how that could affect, okay, well, if you build a direct air capture plant in Texas, can that technology be be exported to China or to India? Because ultimately, we need everybody in the world uh, to come along for this ride. Sounds like some of that connection making that Brandon was talking about between the policy world and then the real world and, you know, getting the whole entity moving in the same direction. Julia, I wonder if we can do some of that with the podcast. You know, we're going to have visibility into some of these briefings that the administration will organize based on topic to learn more about how to access all this new funding. You know, maybe we can serve a role and you know shine a light on some of that for people. 
absolutely we should use the podcast for that for sure and if anyone listening you know knows of ways we can help do that and really bring industry and policy together and help talk about that in the context of these massive pieces of legislation that we're seeing move forward would love to do that and find new and interesting ways to do so and Amy, I'm sure you at Cypher will also be working on these kinds of storylines as well. And I understand you're hiring a new position. So yay, journalism jobs. And anyone who's interested, go check out that open role at Cypher and go work with Amy on covering the latest technologies and business developments that'll help us reach net zero emissions by 2050. Well, there's so much else we could talk to you about, Amy. Really, thank you again for joining us. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much. This was so much fun. Thanks, Amy. Thank you, Amy. All right, that wraps up this episode, which means it's time for me to thank our wonderful producer, Maria Virginia Alano, for her work on this episode, and also Kyle McDonald, our great editor. Thank you to Canary Media and to the USC Schwarzenegger Institute for supporting this show. If you are a listener and you have not yet hit subscribe, now is the time. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, through Spotify, through Stitcher, hit that subscribe button and you can catch all of our shows. We publish every two weeks, which means we'll have another episode coming out just before the end of the year, which is a great time to catch up on past podcasts. In the meantime, feel free to tweet at us at P-O-L-I underscore climate. That's poly underscore climate on Twitter. We're also on Instagram by the same handle. We share updates there and look for show ideas from our listeners. So please feel free to engage. We really love to hear from you. With that, I'm Julia Piper, over and out.